Hey, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with my elder brother, Brad Turner, aka BRAD3, about Buddhism, the idea of rebirth, and the metaphysics of consciousness. Just to give some context to this discussion, around a year ago, BRAD went on a 10-day meditation retreat, which essentially altered the course of his life and his thinking. In the immediate aftermath of that retreat, Birad became extremely interested in Buddhism and meditation. And we talk about a lot of the different aspects related to Buddhism in this discussion. Now, it should be noted that we didn't record this with the intention of releasing it as a podcast. right? So we didn't take the pains to explicitly define a lot of the Buddhist terminology that arises in the conversation. Because again, we weren't recording with the awareness that we would be releasing this to the general public. So if it feels like you're just being dropped in the middle of a conversation where the participants are not at all mic conscious or conscious of the fact that there's an audience listening, that's exactly what's happening. And as you'll hear, while we agree on a lot, there is some substantial disagreement between us. For instance, Birad and I both agree that the self is in some sense an illusion, and that consciousness is fundamental. But when it comes to the Buddhist idea of rebirth and karma, that's where I get off the train. I guess I'm just a skeptic by nature. But in any event, I hope you enjoyed the discussion. So buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. You see the world through the filter of labels and tribes and other, us versus them. Mm-hmm. And all of the almost infinite complexity and dimensions of unique personhood that somebody possesses those just get completely washed over mm-hmm. they get drawn over with like this simple color mm-hmm. like you know it's like this beautiful canvas multicolored canvas that's just painted in black and white so let's go deeper why why do we do that what's what's the cause of that well i i think that um you could potentially give a evolutionary story to partially explain it how uh, tribalism might have been an you know an adaptive feature or whatever where it it played some adaptive role you know it, it, there, it was a you know it's natural to have a fear of the other back when we were living in tribes and we're all isolated because people were constantly at war so this in-group out-group is almost it, it's built into it's, we evolved it in some sense. It's a part of human nature. Yeah, that's true. Even deeper in that, though, the reason why even that happened is, I mean, really to that is is really the individual ego that's creating that separation, that boundary between yourself and others. You know, that's. I mean, you know what it is. Whenever, because I don't think humans were always that way. Is what I'm saying. Like. I think for what your reason, evolutionary reasons, um, we developed this this idea of self that I don't know when, long time ago, but uh, 
And ever since then, like that was uh, it, Thomas Edison. It became it became efficient, right? For practical reasons, like you're talking about. And then that kind of spiraled into uh, forgetting that, like take, taking that concept of self to be what we are, you know. And now it's just so conditioned to the point where, uh, of course, that's what I am, you know. But that that's that's the root that's causing the separation. That's what's causing the tension. That's what's causing the tribalism. It's that originally useful thing that obviously became a problem, like many things in life. So you've constru- you've constructed this temple of personal identity that maybe you don't even. Uh, well, maybe you can make a distinction between like your ideal self, like that person that you think you are and would strive to be. You know that like that's the like that's your inner essence. You might say. And it's that essence that you want to fulfill and manifest in life. Then, like, there's the actual reality of yourself. But I think when most people think of their self, they have more th- have in mind that ideal self. But it, that temple of selfhood is just built up of all of these different things. And if anyone attacks one of those things, like you might say, like, I'm a religious person. That's part of who I am, right? Or I'm a ph- I'm a philosopher person, or I'm I'm this or I'm that. And when someone starts to chip away at that then you feel like your house is under attack. Someone's trying to burn down the temple, you know, but, but the temple ultimately is an illusion that you've constructed. Yeah. And, and, and what, what created that temple is actually the source from the Buddhist point of view, which is craving the craving to becoming right. There's craving that we know, which is like sense pleasures and, you know, anything that's pleasant, but there's also the craving to becoming which is that identity of what you want to be, as you put it. And that's what really created. Craving is actually the creator of the ego. And why Why did we do that? What was the cause of craving? Well, it's like you just said, like an illusion, it's ignorance, right? So ignorance created craving, which created everything else. So it's a... Uh, and, and this is where we have power, and, and or free will is the space between the feeling or the wanting and the craving. That's that's literally the position where we have free will. It's in that gap, that space where we can change. We could change those habits, these habitual tendencies, change the stream of the course of our life. Is in that gap between the feeling, the arising, and the craving. That's where all the work's done. That's where the change happens, you know? Yeah. So it's an important well, spot. And, and if you just constantly identify with the content of consciousness, it's like the contents is a stream, you know? It, it's a a stream of experiences that's being played before your inner movie. But if you identify with the contents, then you're identifying with the stream. And the stream's constantly moving. So you don't, you don't really have any control of your life. It's just taking you away on this endless ride of sensations, but if you step out of the stream onto the dry land of mindfulness, then you can uh, exercise that free will that you're talking about. Yeah, and and the funny thing is, is you, is you think uh, you think you're doing something, you know? What you don't realize is all you're doing is swimming against the stream. It's still flowing you down the same place you're going. You're just creating more resistance and tension of the process that's already happening. So when you step out of the stream, nothing actually changes. Just because you're not identifying with it, nothing changes. It's all happening the same. But 
you got rid of that tension. You got rid of that resistance that's going on. And that's why you live life way more easeful, almost as if you're floating. Because you're working with reality, not against it. Which is why, in a sense, the typical reality, the stereotypical reality, you know, we all want to go with what everyone else is doing. But what everyone else is doing is going against the stream of actual ultimate reality. So by you going against conventional reality in the way you live, you're actually aligning yourself with the true nature of what's going on. And wouldn't it be correct to say that suffering is born in that tension? Like the monk who set himself on fire is completely going with the stream. Like there's no tension whatsoever. Like you said, again, there is no, there is no experiencer of the, of the pain. There's just the reality of pain. Right. So again, you're creating rid of that division, the same division that is you versus other. You get rid of that you. You're, that's just something you're adding on to it. You hear something, you think I'm hearing, it's just the hearing. The hearing is experiencing itself and it's passing away. There's nothing else going on. You adding that I is just multiplying what's going on in either a negative or positive way. But even in the positive way, so people think, oh, well, why wouldn't you want to do that with more pleasurable things? It'd be more pleasurable. Ah, but what you don't see is when you amplify the positive, the positive in its very nature is going to disappear. So by it's a trap. By, by uh, amplifying the positive, when it's gone, then you're automatically adding the amplified of the negative because you started that cycle in the first place. But if, Is that what you meant earlier when you said that happiness is the cause of despair? Or sorry, excitement's the cause of despair? Excitement is the cause of despair, not the opposite. Just as shame, uh, uh, pride is the cause of shame. Shame isn't the opposite of pride. So you don't, have, you don't feel shameful. If you don't have that ego that we're talking about here, that made up added tension that you're creating to the experience that's already happening. That's it. So what about someone who would say that, well, maybe um, that that's a potential negative of completely dissolving the ego because there might be some times when you ought to feel shame. And if you completely just destroy, just... Uh, you know, blow up the self in that way, or so not even blow it up, just re realize that it never existed in the first place. Um, if you break free of the illusion, then th there are certain feelings which might have a, uh, a, a normative function, you know, place, place a morally good role in your cognitive economy that would, just aren't there anymore. No, because you're not getting rid of anything. Shame, shame, what shame is, the only reason why you would have shame is if, you already had a, uh, like when you transcend that concept of I, what you're doing, it's not, you're not not feeling certain things. You're feeling everything, but you're not adding the I to it. Shame is a feeling. It's the feeling of uh, remorse, but you add the I to it. That's what shame is, really. So it's, if you take the I away, that feeling of remorse will be there, but that's different than a feeling of shame. Because by doing that shame, you feel like there's a permanent entity that's that's didn't live up to something versus just the feeling of regret that arises. There is no I with that regret. Right. So yeah. it, does, it doesn't hinder wisdom in any way. You're just taking away added suffering, which is what shame Because is. that feeling of remorse can play the same normative function. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, you don't, obviously that's an unpleasant feeling. So you realize with wisdom, you know, that 
this is what happened, but you don't need to excessively suffer over it. You could just see it as an arising, learn from it and move on. But when you add shame, when you add that I to that feeling, then it feels like you, the made up you, the illusionary you is something that didn't, that failed. But there is nothing that failed. There's just the sense of failing that arose. So you're able, so you're learning to let go and not attach some permanent, made up permanent thing to what's happening. Yeah. That's all it is. You're not changing what's happening. You're just not creating that extra layer of suffering that's multiplying it. That's all it is. So it doesn't hinder learning and wisdom because you're still feeling those initial feelings and you know how they occurred. You're not trying to suppress them. No. You're, again, you're, I just you're, standing, is- you're standing on the side of the stream. If you're suppressing it, you put your foot back in the water. That, right. That's reacting with, that's adding energy with what's going on. But if you're standing on the side of the stream and you're watching what's going on, you're just equanimous. You're, you're letting things come, you're letting things stay, and you're letting things go. And you're not adding any energy to what's going on. You're not clinging on to them more than you should be clinging on to them. You're, but, and, and you're not suppressing them either. Right. You're letting it naturally arise and, and take its natural and natural evolution. In accordance with the flow. Through your, yeah, through your conscious stream. Don't push the river. That's right, yeah. I just think this is a common misunderstanding when they hear about, yeah. you know, the, the pros of mindfulness and, and detaching, you know, almost from, from yourself. Go ahead. Uh, well, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a common mistake because it's not detachment, it's non-attachment. Yeah, there's a distinction. I was that is for. a big distinction. Yeah, because some people just say, oh, it's, it's just detachment as in you're just escaping from your problems. Like all of these right. feelings which you should be feeling you're you're no longer feeling and all these thoughts you're no longer identifying with you're almost trying to run away or escape from yourself but that's not what's happening you're not escaping from yourself it's non-attachment right and people think people mistake that for equanimity when people talk about equanimity that's what they think they're doing what they're actually mistaken equanimity with is the near enemy the near enemy of equanimity is um ne- like just neutrality in- indifference sorry indifference, indifference. yeah there we go uh yeah because what people, what people don't realize is by not feeling something, by trying to suppress something, that's not equanimity, that's aversion. Equanimity is a place where you're not discriminating anything. So if you're being aversive, that's discriminating. So that's why you're not suppressing anything. You're open to everything. Everything that's coming is of equal value. It's all, you know, you're putting the label, good and bad is just a label, it's a concept. You know, often right. we see this in our lives. Oftentimes the worst things that happen to us actually end up being the best. They teach us the greatest lessons, yeah. which actually build. This is why this is why the Buddha put so much emphasis on suffering because it's not that he was pessimistic, which a superficial knowledge of Buddhism people would think, but it's because through suffering is actually where you find happiness. Happiness is possible through that. that, that's, that shows you the way. That's why the emphasis is there. So it's it's quite the contrary. It's it's if you want real the real way to happiness, it, as it's actually by investigating suffering. While most people, the normal mind, you know, it's a firm wired in us that uh, to want you know when pleasant things come, we like it. When unpleasant things come, we don't like it. We show we grasp or we or we reject. So what we're doing is we're changing the mind reaction to these things through mindfulness which is where equanimity is born where we stop doing that 
where we just let things go and come and come and go and stay and go. And you see the change, you see the impermanence, and, and, and that's what makes you become unbiased towards things. You realize things are just happening. And knowing and what's being known collapse in on each other. And you realize yeah. it's the same thing. And yeah. That, you know, and that, I and like that. that. Yeah. That's saucy. So. Um, how you're saying suffering can be obviously really useful. I was just thinking about how that's true in the case of realizing just the fragility of life <clears throat> or just um, being holding the awareness of your own mortality at the front of your consciousness, especially when you're talking about death and people don't want to talk about it or realize it. But if you're operating under the assumption that everything, it's a, you know, it's like, don't you know? Don't you know this day is coming? If you operate under the assumption that everything is just going to continue as they are because that that's the assumption. You, again, it's the habituation. You fall into habits. So you wake up every day and you implicitly assume, if you don't think about it, that you'll continue waking up every day. But if you if you stare reality in the face and realize that life is fragile and we're just fle- you know fleshy bodies in a concrete world, then it's it just it's such a it has so many good functions in your cognitive economy. It, it, it plays it's it just motivates you you know you're like oh well i can't you don't take anything for granted anymore because you realize that this end is just temporary and again you know maybe and honestly you know what it goes back to what we were talking about about the difference between rebirth the idea that there's rebirth or the idea that this is this is the end right it's just kind of like we we get to live this short movie and then back to darkness lights out you know but on the other one, the idea that this is there, there is just this one life and there isn't some consciousness in us that continues and is reborn or reincarnated, if you will, um, then maybe that's more motivating. You know, maybe it's more motivating in some sense to think because now instead of this being just one part, right? Like on Christianity, the idea is life is just a hallway to the eternity, right? We're just in a hallway, a waiting room for the rest of our lives, for eternity. So that life is drained of its significance. Hallways aren't significant. You know, we're we're just waiting, make sure no one misbehaves in the hallway. You go to detention if you misbehave in the hallway. And if you're good, then you get to go outside for and play resets, you know? And, but so on the idea of rebirth, it's not quite like a hallway. It's more, this is just one iteration of an infinite chain of, lives that you'll live on the assumption if you until and if you reach nirvana or whatever the end goal of the path is but that still might be less motivating in some sense than the idea that this is it you know let's do it let's don't waste it but also um you know i can already kind of anticipate maybe what some of what you're gonna say because it could actually you know make you just become a hedonist like fuck it Let's just do drugs like this is it. You know, when in actuality, you should be living a more constrained life of wisdom for the next cycle of rebirth. Why don't, why don't you pick it up for, from here, offer any objections, and maybe describe the concept of rebirth in greater depth? Okay. Uh, there's a lot there, I want to say. Um, <laughs> I'm going so to start with your first, uh, with one of your points. I don't think it was your first, that... Uh, why it's more motivating to live this life if you think it's your only birth. All right, I want to address that first. Yeah. Um, 
in, in one sense, uh, motivating in some ways. In some, in, in one sense, you're right about the hedonistic thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, you just. But in another sense, um, you're wrong because if this was your one life, the hedonistic attitude would actually make a hundred percent sense. It would actually, it, it would actually be a, a valid way to live life. I mean, if this was your only life and that was it. Why not indulge in just constant pleasure, 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 pleasure? And then when life becomes not worth it and you become old or sick, just overdose on morphine or something and have a great, you know, that, I mean, why not? This is your That'd only be a life. Good way to there, go. There's no repercussions, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, on the other hand, if you have the other attitude that, oh, no, this is my only life. I got to make it work. Like, I got to make it worth it. And you constantly are doing and doing and, and constantly just never satisfied and never enough. Well, you're also not enjoying that one life because you're just constantly trying to feel rushed to get everything in. And you're not really giving yourself an opportunity to actually be in the now and appreciate what is instead of what you want. Got to get to that bucket list. So <clears throat> either way, I, I don't see any any gain to that understanding in a way to, to actually benefit the way you think life is. Um, as to your Christian tradition of uh, of view um, of it as a hallway until the uh, eternal heaven, right? Right. That's what they believe. Well, from the Buddhist view, that is also heaven is also not the goal because just like everything, it's impermanent. So, okay, this is a hallway, and then you know you think, okay, you said hallways are boring. That's not where I mean. To get, you know, the tradition, the Christian tradition says to get to that internal heaven, as they call it, you know, you got to do good, you got to help your neighbor, um, right? Believe in Jesus Christ, all that. So you got to live a moral Let him life. into your heart. You got to believe in him. Yeah. Let you, him in. <laughs> you got to live a moral life, right? So that's the point. So, so, right. so there is a purpose in the into that hallway that they put it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that does give you actually a purpose in life. But from the Buddhist point of view, the heaven isn't the goal because heaven isn't eternal. That's it's if you're reborn, you die. With birth comes death. That's with everything you see in nature. So being born in heaven, as in the in Buddhist cosmology, yes, that's a place you want to be in. It's a place that has much more great sensual pleasures than earth. It's what is heaven? I in Buddhist cosmology. In Buddhist cosmology, it's um you're you're basically a celestial being, you know. So you're a being made of light. You're, I mean, you're you don't get uh, like sicknesses or, or any of the stuff. Um, a being of light that a human, yeah, they have very minimal uh, actual like physical body to the mind. So you can you know you, you can uh, it's you're free from a lot of the 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 pain and stuff from, that the body has that we had to deal with. But it is still light, and you also live a long time, like thirty thousand years or so. But again. It comes to an end. It comes to an end once that karma burns out. So if you're a naughty ball of light, <clears throat> in other words, if, if you misbehave as a ball of the light and don't do whatever, and I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm being kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I'm not trying to diminish it. Um, can, you, can you be reborn in a lower dimension of, of existence? Of course. Is there you, any you don't even have to be naughty. Just once that, <laughs> once that runs out, it's, uh, you know, depending... 
you know, your next life, say you would be born, I don't know, like just just say a human being for, you know, just just as an example. It's not, there isn't any, uh, that's not a rule or anything. Um, Then as a human, you could do a bunch of bad deeds and then wound up in, in the place you don't want to be, you know, which the hell realm. Can you can you just describe the different realms? How many realms are there? Is there a definitive list of realms? Uh, there, so it's like there's different planes of existence and stuff. But yeah, for overall, there's there's six realms that one would be reborn that consciousness can uh, play out um, lives in. And the potentially infinite cycle of rebirth. Yes. Okay. The ocean of samsara, as they call it. Um, <laughs> so what what are the realms? So the bottom three, the worst one would be the hell realms which we also see hell in the Christian tradition, which is composed mainly of just constant torture and pain and, and suffering and, and, and thirst. It's just, it's it, not a place you want to be. Um, then there's one, uh, the afflicted spirits realm. So they use like a symbol, an image in Buddhism of like a, like a ghost with a big belly and a tiny mouth where it's always, it's constantly hungry and it can never be filled up. It's constantly thirsty, and it, it never gets quenched. Um, so they're, they're beings of great uh, greed. Um, then there's one that we actually see here on Earth, which is the animal realm, which is composed mainly of dullness and fear. Um, eat or be eaten. Um, and then there's the, the, the higher realms, which is uh, one is the human, which is an equal amount of pleasant and unpleasant um, going on. So there's not too much uh, pleasantness that we, you know, we're not motivated to show up and in a sense. Um, and it's not too unpleasant where we're just overwhelmed. So that's really a, a precious uh, realm to be in because as a human, you have enough motivation to seek an end of the cycle. But you have enough pleasantness where, where you're able to do it. So it's it's a it's it's a very it's a very rare and and very precious opportunity. Um, after that, there's the the heaven realms as we talked about the celestial beings, um, and then there's the 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 Brahman realm, the Brahma realm, which is uh, I mean pretty much almost from what I understand, your your all mind pretty much. I mean the pure abodes as they call it where there's not really a body. It's just a mind. You, you can live for like eons. Um, but again, all of these, Wait, so that's the ball of light realm. Yeah. That's like, so they say you get into that realm when you're able to achieve the formless jhanas, the jhanas is an intense state of concentration where you become absorbed, um, into an object. And then the formless is, uh, one that's, it's not even with an object, you know, it, they call it like the, the, the space, uh, of boundless consciousness, boundless nothing, boundless neither perception nor perception. So if you can achieve these, like you've really achieved a pure mind because it's, it's a path of purification. So um, that would take the an initial um, rebirth, um, rebirth consciousness, which I'll get into in a sec. Um, Wait, so but I, in these upper realms that you're talking about, even they don't, last forever you even, said you could even be they come to an end yeah so is there any way to escape the cycle of rebirth or to put an end to it yes yeah so that's what the path is um not just that's the path not just yeah not just the buddhist path but i mean all spiritual paths that are out there that's 
that's the realization that everyone comes to, which is, uh, which is enlightenment, as you heard. So, so what is enlightenment, right? What is, what is all that? Uh, <laughs> enlightenment. Well, there's one thing to understand. There's not one thing called enlightenment. It's actually a gradual process that happens in stages. But uh, you know, you're you're slowly realizing. You're waking up from the illusion of conventional life and touching uh, ultimate truth, ultimate um, reality. That is what we are, uh, which is which is the deathless uh, in us. Um, so the deathless. Yeah, I do. You want me to get into rebirth first, or yeah, get into rebirth first. Okay, I think that would be easier. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> if anyone is is listening to this and we uh, release this, they'll be like, what is happening? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to get too far ahead here, but... Yeah. So what does it mean to be reborn? So... I mean, in the conversation, we've already kind of indicated what it is. Well, we've already talked about how there's no permanent entity and everything in our life is just a stream of different sensations arising in, in a mind stream. So this isn't just entitled to this life this so it's a the the mind stream the stream of consciousness is is con, it's a process that continuously is changing and going on and when the physical body dies it doesn't put an end to this process um so so why how, how does that happen right uh so the reason why you become reborn is uh due to your craving for existence. Like, like we talked about, that space in between the feeling, the cessation that's arising, and then the craving after it. So so by the way, already you're assuming uh, phys- traditional physicalism is false and that mind is in some sense metaphysically separate from matter. Right, yes. Because the body dies, you're saying, but the mind, your consciousness, whatever that is, still remains. Right. I yeah. mean, again, science knows this. Like we talked about, that law of energy isn't created or destroyed, it's transferred, right? Yeah, matter isn't created or destroyed, and because, yeah, we know that science tells us that with respect to matter, all you're saying at a broad scale, because, I, I, you know, if anyone's listening, to, like a lot of people will be like, what is, it? what is this voodoo crazy shit they're talking about? Yeah. And um, you're just saying, no, well, mind is separate from matter, and that's, you know, yes, all the physicalists who might be listening to this be like, no, it's not, no, it's not, then it's right, or whatever. But, um... The, but, but you're just saying consciousness can be neither de- created nor destroyed either. It just transfers, just as matter transfers, and energy transfers into a different medium. Right, because what is consciousness? It's really the energy. Like and, when you burn light. something, the energy transfers into something else. And you're just saying when you're reborn, your consciousness transfers into something else. Right. You can think of it as a candle is burning. And as the candle is dying, you take that flame and then you put it on another candle and light that candle. So is it is it the same candle? No, it's a different candle. That's why... This is different than reincarnation. There's nothing being reincarnated, but the you could say that that flame is the cause of that previous flame, which is the same thing that's going on here, which is, so you're craving for existence. So when you die, that craving is that is that volition, that intention that's transferring that energy to a new life. It's that flame touching the other flame. And, and that mechanism that's creating that flame to touch the other flame is craving, is what is wanting to become. So people would be like, well, of course I want to live, right? What would be the opposite? Yeah. So I, I just want to, 
like for you know someone could reject to this by just saying mind is not separate from matter as i just said you could just endorse physicalism but i'm not going to i'm not going to make that move in the argument because i i'm not a physicalist i'm a panpsychist i agree with you that <clears throat> mind is in some sense omnipresent and uh consciousness is ubiquitous at the fundamental level of reality right and all of that but when it comes to rebirth again and the the this notion of the afterlife again i'm agnostic about whether you know i think that maybe no maybe there could just be the end and it just lights out for that versus the rebirth thing that you're talking about because i you know i think that you can have a panpsychist worldview and still that's compatible with the notion that this is it you know because you can still think that like at some fundamental level mind is there but there's no like to say that you're reborn assumes that there's some essence that you like there's some like essence to your consciousness so, so like in what sense and here we might get into some discussions about personal identity but in, in what sense is it you that's transferred if it's like it's like you're saying your energy or your consciousness but what why think that that's the case okay um so yeah what you're saying the essence or the soul as people like to think of that's sort of em emphasized in the the hindu tradition where they 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 think there's some internal permanent soul transferring from life to life but uh buddhism um no they they, they don't believe that they hinduism you can think of it as like a necklace with a bunch of beads on it and the actual string is that soul it's, what are, what are the beads each bead is in each individual life okay right well, Buddhism is like, no, it's like actually like a stack of dye where the dye itself are separate, but the previous dye is the cause of the next dye. Okay, can I stop? So, uh, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but that has profound implications for a personal identity, it seems to me. On the Hindu view, it seems like there is some you that survives. On the Buddhist view, right. maybe there is no you that survives. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. And... uh I mean, but you can, but like we talked about earlier, we could see this in this life right now. You don't have to wait till die to know this, because as we see, what it, what in this life is permanent? I mean, every every sensation of the mind is comes and goes. Every material sensation of the body and and and, and any any physical sensation comes and goes. So there's nothing there. And as we see, there's no one experiencing that. It's them experiencing the mother. So it's just a process going, it's an empty process going on by itself. This is the Buddhist concept of emptiness. There's nothing behind the process. The process is doing itself. So when Nibbana is, or at least from my understanding, is you're stopping, you're putting the water on the fire of that process. The process stops. So that process that's happening, that's experiencing itself, is done. And nibbana is simply peace and bliss, because everything that arising is actually like something on fire. It's it's even even neutral things are actually unpleasant. Even happy things are actually unpleasant, which is why equanimity is the highest state of mind. Because something that's excitement is actually suffering, because it's uh, the precursor to when it leaves. Right. But um. But again, so it seems to me that um, you know, people might initially hear this notion of rebirth and be, and be excited, like, oh, there is an afterlife. I get to be, I get, I mm -hmm. get to be reborn. 
But on to go back to the domino versus the bead analogy, on the domino analogy, you're not really being reborn. No, you're giving caught. You're you're. It's it, it's almost like you can almost think about it in terms of like pregnancy on Earth, right? Like a child is not the same as the mother. The mother gives life to the child. It causes it. And in some say you're saying, in some sense, you're saying that you, in this realm of existence, are giving life to the the next um, iteration of your of your consciousness or whatever you're causing it. But that's that thing isn't you. So. If you're looking for a notion of the afterlife, you should go elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. But so it's not you, um, but it's still experience in the sense that it's another process going on. It's the same process going on in a different person, in a sense. So no, it's not you, but there's the experience of somebody else keeps going on. So I want to go back to your first question, which is, of course, I want that, right? Well, th- th- this is this is the idea of delusion. I mean, if you really look at life, you you kind of realize, like, like would you would you really want to do your life over again? I mean, even even us yes. who are human beings who are still young, still young, baby, right? Who who uh, you know have have well means are just in a good position. I mean, honestly, yo, knock on wood. Honestly, dog. honestly, one of the best positions you can be. And even still, how many lessons have we learned throughout our life? I mean, how many how many just just bad things, even with such a good situation, have occurred? So. The point is, you're not always going to be even in this good situation. There, are, and it's even if you do well in this in this life, someone else in the next life could just, you know, do do a bunch of horrible things and put you in a put you in a, in a much worse position. And it goes on and on and but on. But it's not you again. And so, but it's the experience is what continues. So yeah, it's not you, it's somebody else, but that experience is what continues. And and the, also to um um to now build off your point. You, you could just say like, well yeah, it's not, yes, it's not you, but there is no you in this life anyways. Right. <laughs> like there's ne- there there was never any like you. Right. Like that 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 word doesn't have a place in this life either. It doesn't right. have a place exactly. anywhere. Exactly. There, there exactly. there's no you at all. It's just a continuation of what's already going on in a different body. That's all that's happening. Yeah, I don't know if we came to a, some some kind of agreement there. Um, yes, I've been approaching this as a good debate <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> you think we've just been talking? <laughs> well, I maybe we should talk about uh, karma because that's, I mean, the big indicator of why our, our like, difference. No, ha- well, yeah, but in I, our belief systems, but also or my my lack of belief, <laughs> but but also like, why would you be born in a hell realm versus a hellman helven realm? What what uh, what causes that? Yeah, so so let me give my layman's description of it. There she is. It's a uh, <laughs> karma. So yeah, if you do good things in this life, it's again going back to the idea that. Uh, matter can neither be created nor destroyed, nor can consciousness be created nor destroyed. That energy, which is transferred in the next realm, um, you can build up good energy in some sense, if you want to use that, by doing good things in this life. And then that can 
that, that that can upgrade you to a higher realm of existence. You laid out the six realms in hierarchical hierarchical fashion, and and if you do bad things in this life, then you can get be downgraded to a to a worse realm. And that's the notion of of karma, like that that things that you do um, will you know come back to haunt you in some sense. Um, again, there's no you, but well, it, yeah, uh, yeah, it's more cause and effect. Every every action. Again, science says this. Every action has an opposite and equal reaction, right? So karma is like, karma means action. So you do an action, you have an intention, you have volition. Karma is like the shadow but, that okay. follows that. Go ahead. Here's here's where we disagree. Yes. Because what if someone lives a completely good life their entire life and then they just get cancer and something horrible happens to them? You know, bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people. It seems to me that your explanation of that is, well, in some previous iteration of their existence, they must have had done some bad things and karma must have catched, caught up to them. And I don't, you know, I, I'm not, a, a, again, I'm not saying I think that's impossible or I, I um, I'm, 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 I'm open to that, but I don't actively believe that. I think, yeah, maybe that's a possibility, but another possibility is um, um, bad things just happen. It's just random. It's randomness. It's chaos. Sometimes there are, you know, whatever, if you want to do cancer, uh, what what is it? It's a process where like it, you know, I don't know the science, but it, it continues to multiply and multiply. Maybe that just kind of randomly happens to some people. I mean, in other cases, it, it can be brought on by smoking and stuff like that. But some people, it just randomly happens. And there is no there is no karma. There is no, oh, but this is something coming back to haunt you. It's just, it's just chaos. It's just randomness in some cases. And you can do all you want in life and be as good a person as you want. And horror and tragedy can still befall you. All right, well, take a look at examples in your own life of this. Uh, <clears throat> think about all the, the causes and effects you see around you, right? Let's use a simple example. You plant an apple seed, you don't get an orange tree, right? Okay, so we see that. So there's a cause and effect and there's a correlation there. Let's think. If you, if you, if you do something like lie or if you do something that uh, you regret, there's a sense of remorse that happens, right? Like, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or right, I should have done that, or I could have done that, right? Well, that arising right there is the reaction, the karma to the result, I'll put it, as to that action that you did. I mean, that's it right there. So with your example, first off, you don't know, karma has to do with your intention, your volition, so not what you see on the outside. So when you say someone lives a good life, well, one, you don't know. You have no idea what their intentions were throughout stuff. Two, beside that point, karma also, it's not something that ripens right away all the time. Sometimes it does, like the example of, of lying, for instance. Or, but, you know, depending on what the action is, oftentimes it takes certain time and, and conditions for, for that to ripen. And, you know, that could be early on in this life, but it, it, it does explain why uh, the differences you see between people with in the fact to or to previous lives and in, in, in rebirth it, it, it's a, it's a kind of another uh, um, anecdotal evidence of that you could see it so <clears throat> the, the the point is is whatever whatever intention you have there's always going to be an effect from it whatever cause you put out there's an effect, right? I mean, anything that arises 
is an effect of actually a previous cause. I mean, that's every that's that's not just true for the sense of rebirth. Right. That's true for everything that you see in existence. Right, and even so, there's no. It's in line with with the law that's going on with everything else that's happening. And even cancer has a cause, but sometimes that cause has nothing to do with your actions and whether you've been a good or bad person. It has to do with just things happening at the at the and the level of the brain. Like yes, it doesn't. It's not spontaneous, but there's a cause to it. But it that the cause is divorced from your 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 character and and what your the actions that you do. In some cases, like obviously smoking causes so, cancer. And all so, that, but but, but you know think I mean. but think about that. Think about how out of line that is compared to everything else, right? So everything is happening because of causes. I mean, even this next thought has certain causes and conditions for it to be happening. Where does that thought come from? From you, from a previous you that was conditioned, and it goes all the way down. So it's always been you. Yeah, yeah, but but everything is conditioned. Is what I'm saying. So that I know, can, our that disagreement can, is no, on the rebirth. No, nothing can just happen. You say just cancer can just happen. No, like not even smoking. Say they lived a healthy life, right? Right. Yeah. There's still a cause. It's a result of something. You know, there's I, always a cause to everything. I know, but I'm but I'm saying that cause. It, it's not because oh you were a bad person in your past and that's why. It's no. It's just something that is physically happening in the world that you don't have any control over. It's your your biology going bananas, right? Banana just going haywire. Um but, not but, functioning. But, but 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 see right there you're saying that there's no cause. You're saying just going haywire. You, no, no, no. You're, you're no, saying, no, 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 no. There's there's a cause, but the cause exists at the physical level. I'm not saying there's no cause. I'm saying that you're not responsible for it in this case that we're stipulating where you've lived a healthy life. You haven't done anything. It has nothing to do with there's no karma in it. That's what I'm saying. I'm not denying that there's a cause. I'm denying that there's karma. All right. You said it's just physical. But you realize the mind is what influences the physical. I mean, what good is this body if there is no mind? You've seen a dead person. You see the body. There's no reaction going on. So that is the cause is what I'm saying. That intention is what influences the physical. I mean, okay. But my problem with this line of thinking is here's, here's where we get into the kind of new age medicine, medicine stuff. You know, the, the, the belief that, it, well, if you just, you know, um, um, you, you you don't really need medicine because if you foster a healthy mind and maybe you have a, you know a vegan milkshake every day like Bob Marley refused Western medicine I think Steve Jobs refused Western medicine because they had these beliefs that you by cultivating your mind in some sense you can get the disease out of you but in some cases no you need the medicine regardless of even whether you're an enlightened being an enlightened being can die of cancer of course and I I totally agree with all that um, it's yeah, I mean, it, oh, it, 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 I guess I was attacking a straw man. <laughs> yeah, it, it, but there are there have been many many cases, by the way, where people who were said to die of cancer, you know, they went on, they went to a certain monastery and they started doing spiritual practice, and you know, and they developed themselves and they healed themselves. So, no, it's not guaranteed, but it happens quite often and it has a positive effect. And science says if you're happy your cells actually have more of that energy, that happy energy. Your cells in themselves are actually happy. So if you're healing your mind, and you are having a positive healing effect on your body. Does it mean you're going to get rid of cancer 100%? No, of course not, because there are other causes, as we talked about. Right. Which, but you're also creating new conditions that can actually right. help and potentially at times 
alleviate. And obviously, there is a connection. Like you know, if you if you if you're really anxious, that can um, lead to an acne breakout or something like that. Exactly. Right? Like there's there you a, go. Yeah. The mind influences the body. I mean, even on the uh, quantum mechanical level, I mean, we see that you can't observe something without having an influence on it, which means we're not different than everything that's going on. We're actually a key part of it. We're, we're part of what's going on. We're a participant observer in the sense where no matter what you look at, you're having an effect on it. So this, I mean, this shows right here how one affects the other. Yeah. So when you talk about cancer being just a physical cause, well, right there is an example of how well what's there is, there is that reaction I guess from the it, observer that's that's creating yeah. it. I guess I'm just dubious um to the extent to which that goes. You know, like yes, it is true that um if you've been really anxious and that led to an uh, a breakout of acne, you know, if you go on a retreat and you get your mind just really settled and you're at peace internally, the acne might go away. Now, how far do you take that? If you have cancer, if you have brain cancer, I don't know whether there, I guess I, w I would be skeptical of your claim that there are some cases where even, you know, something like that, some, some serious health thing like that could uh, be alleviated just via, uh, again, cultivating mindfulness. It's not just mindfulness, but the whole, the whole karmic causes, you know, the previous cause. I mean, you don't, you're talking about what to what extent it's not really about what, to what extent but it's about the consistency of all things i mean this is how everything is working and what you're saying is somehow something else is going to work differently that's i mean that's more irrational i mean if this is a law it would make sense that this is what's happening through everything i mean we we already see that previous causes call results and everything else and now you're rejecting that oh but in this case that's actually not true which that doesn't really make sense. That's not consistent with everything else in nature that's going on. So it's not really about how far you take it, but it's about seeing that, oh no, this is a law that's true to all things, everything. And there is, and uh, yes, but again, um, you're trying to create a, an anomaly almost to something. It almost seems like just, just out of, you know, uh, um, almost a, a non-acceptance framework. Well, yeah, but I mean, even you admit that the while the body and the mind interact in this realm or whatever, the mind is separate from your body. That's how this conversation began. So, so there are there are, which doesn't make it surprising if if you believe that that I mean, if you believe that the mind is the body, then it's, that's a whole yeah. But uh, yeah, there are things in the body that can happen independent of the mind. They're, they're they're separate, but they go together. Yeah, one depends on the other. And I mean. And they're both um, impermanent. You know, I I do have to say, I we haven't really gotten into the metaphysics of consciousness at all. But I don't. I wouldn't really necessarily agree. Yeah, I wouldn't agree that they're a separate at all. Uh, but I, I don't yeah. think that the mind. I'm a, again, a resilient monism, panpsychist. Resilient monism says that the physical matter is constituted by consciousness. Um, that that physics describes the physical structure of the universe, but what intrinsic property instantiates that structure and resilient monism, panpsychism says that it's consciousness, right? So, um, uh, what we think of as matter is almost just like, in some, it's almost, it's a manifestation of consciousness in some sense. Yeah. Um, but, but so that picture where consciousness is still metaphysically separate from matter, the, you, consciousness can't be reduced to matter. 
matter might be able to be reduced to consciousness in some sense. But that's different from the traditional dualist picture where you have the soul floating in your body and there are two separate, you know, they're, maybe they're interacting on some forms of dualism, interactionism, but they are, and, you know, there are so many different forms of dualism. Epiphenomenalism says that consciousness is like a steam engine and the body can affect the mind, but the mind can affect the body. So if you're an epiphenomenalist, an epiphenomenalist would completely disagree with pretty much everything that we've said and everything that you said regarding how the mind can have an effect on the body, the conversation we're just having. Um, because, I mean, obviously we can all see how that's not true. I mean, if you have a anxious thought, what does that do to your body? Right? It increases your heartbeat. You get that, that butterflies in the feeling. It's so it's pretty obvious that they influence each other and they're inseparable. And there's like a non-dualist action going there's a there's non nothing separate, you know. It's all it's all together. One depend I mean, how how are you able to see matter without without an observer, you know? Yeah, and I think most people would also find the idea of mental causation plausible. It's like, as John Searle said, you know, you have a thought to raise up your hand and the thing goes up, you know? Um, but even before the thought is the intention. Oh, yeah, the, int- yeah, the, the intention, yeah. So it's like the more aware you get, the farther you could see the causal link. And you can see it's just everything is, a you know, that thought has a cause, that intention has a cause, and, you know, it just right. keeps going down. So anyway, go ahead. No, I was, I was just thinking it's... Uh, um, I could see how someone could be listening to this conversation and assume a kind of dualism. You know, this idea that there's like essence and it's inside of you, then it goes to the next life. It's like, no, no, at, at least for me, you know, um, I'm, 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 uh, the panpsychist picture is also anti-physicalist, but it's radically different from the dualist picture, you know, because think there's more of a unity, as you say, between mind and matter on the panpsychist picture. Yes. Yes. There's a unity just like we talked about with quantum mechanics too, where the observer and the has the direct effect at what it's looking at. So you could see right there that it's uh, we're all part of the process that's going on. There, there is no, there is no nothing separate or outside of it. It is a part of the same thing. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Where do you think consciousness ends, and where does it begin? Right, like we're talking about. You're like the earlier you're talking about how. Um, just how morally, how, you know, when you go fishing, what you're really doing is committing a genocide on fishes and how, just how morally abominable it is. If you think about what you're actually doing, with the fishing, sticking its, uh, hook through its eye. It's like, if there were like, again, like I was saying, there are these powerful gods that were sticking hooks through our eyes and dragging us into water, you know, and that is just morally abominable because fish are presumed to be conscious and have suffering. But is there, it gets to a point when um, there are certain entities like ants, it's questionable whether they're conscious. And again, panpsychism, hold on. <coughs> panpsychism, people get confused on this point. Panpsychism says that consciousness is everywhere. A lot of people say, <clears throat> hear that and they assume that Oh, you're saying everything's conscious. You're saying rocks are conscious. You're saying plants are conscious. You're saying that everything has a little bit of consciousness. Panpsychism, as I understand it, doesn't necessarily entail that. It says that consciousness is ubiquitous at the fundamental level of reality. And then and then that there are also certain macroscopic organisms like humans that we know are conscious, because I'm one of those and I know I'm conscious. But 
it could be that it's present at the the fundamental level, and then there are certain combinations of matter that gives level that gives rise to higher instantiations of consciousness. That doesn't mean that everything is conscious. A panpsychist can think that there are some living entities, can say that, yeah, trees aren't conscious, and maybe there are some living entities that aren't conscious, right? Maybe ants have a little bit of consciousness, but maybe it becomes more questionable when we're talking about microscopic organisms. Are they conscious? There's microscopic organisms in your body, you know? So I guess what would be your perspective on just how ubiquitous consciousness is in the universe? Well, I mean, it's it, it's fundamental. And when we talk about consciousness... It's fundamental, for sure. I agree with that. When we talk about consciousness, you realize, like, what we are isn't one consciousness either. Like, it's a bunch of different consciousnesses. Like, when you're hearing... There's, okay. Yeah, go when, when a sound... There's three things going on when you hear. There's the sound. There's the ear that's able to hear the sound. And then there's the consciousness of the sound. All happening. One, one cause of the other. And then when uh, you smell something, it's the same thing. So there's... It's not one consciousness that's experiencing everything. Everything has their own consciousness intrinsic in them. So... Because of because your ear is is uh, present, and because the sound is present, and it hits the ear, and the attention's there, attention's also another key element there. Then consciousness arises, and so that's the same with all the five senses: hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Um, and uh, the reason why it seems like there's a continuity of just one consciousness is because the sixth sense which is the mind also has its own uh mental objects thoughts images hits the mind and then they become conscious but what's special about the mind is it's actually able to reflect all of the the consciousnesses from the five senses right after they happen so that's why it seems like it's all one thing but the mind is really just a mirror of all the other consciousness that's going on and in itself, it's its own thing. Yeah, see, this is... Um, yeah, well, I want to get back to the how, where do you think consciousness ends and begins. But with that point, yeah. that's interesting because um, a lot of... It kind of seems to go against this idea that there's a unity of consciousness, you know? And uh, a lot of philosophers think that, you know, maybe consciousness is necessarily unified. Um, so they would say that it's not as if you say that the mind is a separate consciousness which reflects the others, they would say that, well, no, maybe this higher order consciousness subsumes the others. The others are a part of it. So in that sense, they're not separate. Yes, and uh, consciousness is impermanent, just like everything else. It's something that arises and passes away, just like everything else that's going on. So that's another reason, too, why there's not a single thing going from life to life. Because consciousness itself is is just another arising and falling and then that continuously goes on, just like the candle flame where we think it's one flame, but it's actually burning over and over again. Same thing is going on with consciousness every moment of our lives throughout. It's, right. It seems like it's one flame, but it's not. It's just one after the other. Well, yes, yes, yes. Um, I think there's a there's a distinction there because I was just talking about, um, this is called a synchronous versus diachronous diachronous uh like consciousness like you're, you're talking about consciousness existing throughout time from one moment to the next and you're saying it doesn't really exist from one moment to the next just like a flame doesn't exist from one moment to the next i was talking about consciousness 
at a single time, like, like freeze it, freeze a time frame, and talking about the contents um, of consciousness and whether there is one consciousness in some sense in the, just there, just uh, synchronously, like there aren't because of this unity. I'm just saying. I, I, so there's a distinction, I think. There, that's all. So, so well, I think what you're trying to say is everything is arising in one consciousness. Is that what you're saying? Like, yes. Like, like when you say freeze. Of so let me give an example. So yeah, yeah. Um, there are many. If you if you if you you know just reflect upon your conscious field, and you'll notice that there are many different aspects of to it. There's a sensation maybe of redness. There are different sensory modalities which pick things up. You're hearing something. You're seeing something, you're smelling something, someone's talking to you. There are all these different experiences that are occupying your conscious field. And the idea behind the unity of consciousness is that there's something it's like to experience all of these things separately, but there's also something it's like to experience them all together at once. Because there are, and con there are all these little experiences are in some sense subsumed by this larger experience which contains them. Wow. Um, and it seems like that's what you were denying. Yes. 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 Everything, there is nothing outside of the sensations themselves that's experiencing them. Right. So, so the, there the, are just, there are just the separate sensations. Yes. So, I mean, in, in meditation, I've seen this where, you know, I'll have a pain in my knee, like a stabbing pain, and then I'll have a thought going on too as it happens and, and i and i realize i see that the thought can't experience the pain one sensation can't experience another sensation and then i you know I, looking right. further you realize each sensation is actually its own experience in and of itself it's Here experiencing itself and then it goes away and you know to me what i felt like was just a platform for things to come into existence and experience themselves and then go away that's what it felt like. So there's nothing in the platform in and of itself, empty, empty, nothing. The consciousness and the experience is in each sensation, and then it leaves. So there's nothing outside of those sensations right. and themselves as, that's experiencing them. And as you say, Buddhism doesn't neglect the felt uh, unity or the felt sense that there is this higher order consciousness uh, which is experiencing, subsuming all the rest because of the reflection analogy that you're talking about. Exactly. It, it just seems that way. So that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, yeah, there's a lot of <coughs> there's a lot of interesting work on the unity of consciousness. There are split. One of the um, Thomas Nagel has a really famous paper on it. But one of you know, there's a lot of talk of a split brain patients in the unity of consciousness literature, um, and the idea that maybe this disproves the unity of consciousness. Split, split brain patients. It seems like the different hemispheres of the brain have now separated into two different points of view. And, and, and uh, each hemisphere isn't necessarily aware of the going-ons of the other hemisphere of the brain. They've done very uh, interesting empirical experiments on split-brain patients. And there are different ways of interpreting what, what's going on with split-brain patients. Some people think that maybe now, that instead of that one point of view, there are two separate points of view now in one head, in one brain, you know, so, so to speak to do one point of view for each hemisphere. And other people might think, no, there's still one point of view, but the what's going on is the point of view is just no longer unified. It's one point of view that is disunified now, the unity 
of it, of the consciousness has been ruptured, but it's still one consciousness. But if you're a proponent of the unity thesis and think that consciousness is necessarily unified, you might be more inclined to interpret it in the of what's going on in split brain patients in the former way. You might be more interpreted to say like, no, 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 there are two unified new consciousnesses now instead of one disunified consciousness. Does that make sense? It does. Um, for, for, for my view, it's, there's not one or two, there's zero points of view. There's just, well, um, in the, uh, I guess, yeah, point of view, what, what do we really mean by that? Like in some, right. if, exactly. Yeah. yeah po- point of view is different from the self, uh, uh, like just, I guess I just mean like by point of view, I just mean low key of consciousness, low key of consciousness. Yeah. Like, like, like the, like for like your, <laughs> for instance, your point of view versus my point of view. I have a point of view on the world perspective on the world. You have your own perspective on the world. Each of our point of views is closed off from one another. So if you're going to interpret the split oh, brain patient, okay. if you're going to right, that's what I mean. So like you have your own, I have my own point of view. Um, or any other human presumably has their own inner world, right? So but, but, if, if you interpret the split brain patient uh, as ha- having two different points of view, it's like, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like Two different, that just as our points of view are kind of closed off, don't interact with another, same might be going on in the split brain patient. Or not, could be one, but still disunified. Yeah, I mean, obviously I don't, I don't know much about this whole split brain. I don't either, uh, honestly. So, so I, I can't really say, but... Um, I mean, as to your point of view, I mean, it's in one body, so I'm, I'm con- I guess I'm just confused on, on like what what that would entail. The yeah, two point of view. Like, I mean, it's again, as we know, everything's just empty. Everything's just happening. So, I mean, everything's still happening in a split brain. I mean, maybe it's just a distortion of perception that's going on. But even that's just another uh, another part of the dance that's happening. So, you know, I don't, I, I can't, I can't really know what that uh entails so i can't really say but yeah i don't really either um but yeah but yeah no i was just uh go all that started because i was just going on a riff about yeah the unity of consciousness and how we were talking about that and there's interesting literature on it and there's empirical work being done which investigates it you know um yeah yeah. so um again just bridge trying to bridge the buddhism and your thoughts and the on Buddhism and what what, what Buddhism might imply about consciousness to more well, Western work that's going on in this stuff and analytic philosophy in cognitive science and stuff like that. Well, the whole thing is is like, yeah, even though there's, there's different streams going on, different mind streams, it's all like when it, a person becomes enlightened, the reason why there's so much compassion along with the wisdom is they realize that the st- you and someone else are the same thing. Again, it's a non-dualist view. It's a non. It's you realize that when, when you're talking to, to like, if I'm talking to you, yeah, I'm actually talking to myself. Like you, like you realize it's, it's like, it's the same thing experiencing itself from, like you said, the two different point of views, which is actually illusionary because if you break that barrier between inside and outside what's happening on the inside what's happening on the outside you realize there is no difference so that's the same with someone one being and another being 
And that's why that's why compassion naturally arises. It's not like, oh, I'm gonna be compassionate. It's it naturally arises because you're able to get this view. So can I paraphrase what you just said? That's really interesting. I'm not sure if I agree with it. So you said how you know Buddhists will talk about how sensations which normally like this once you break through the illusion of the self, then you realize that there really there's just this open field of consciousness and there are sensations arising within. So that again, the sound of the bird chirping, which seems to be happening out there in the world, that's actually, once you break through the illusion of self, that's just as much in here as it is out there. And again, if you just have a thought, that's just as much out there as in here. And you're saying that the same, that's a good analogy for what's going on between different so-called points of view. Like you think that just as, you know, you're having your own uh, consciousness or subjective perspective that's different from mine, Ultimately, there's no there's no separation between them. Just as there's no separation between what's in here and out here, there's no separation between the points of view, and they're all the same in some sense. Um, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I, just as waves in an ocean, yeah, they're different. One wave is taller, one wave is shorter. They're you, we know they're the same thing. There's nothing separate. Actually, I mean, it, there's an illusion that they're separate, but it's all water. That's going on. It's it's all it, the, the, there's no one wave doesn't. I mean, imagine if a wave had an ego, and it thought, all right, it was a separate thing, and then it was scared to crash to shore, right? Because it thought it would die. But <laughs> if a wave got rid of that ignorance, that it's not a separate thing. It's not. There's there's that you're not going to die. You just you collapse back into everything that's already going on that is how the wave will get rid of fear right so in the same way when a being becomes enlightened the reason why they become more compassionate and fearless is because they also realize that they're the ocean they're the water they're not the wave in that sense and that's why there's no separation between this wave and that wave yeah it's all one thing i just think this is a this is a pretty counterintuitive way to think about consciousness. And most people think that we have, we, each person has their own consciousness, right? I have my consciousness, you have your consciousness or point of view, whatever terminology you want to use. And it's clo- they're fundamentally closed off from one another. But what you're saying is that, no, they're not fundamentally closed off from one another. We're all in some sense part of the same consciousness or the same ocean. Um, it's interesting because if, you're, if what you're saying is true, then the combination problem for panpsychism might not be as threatening as it looks. And the, the, the combination problem we talked about is just, you know, if you're a micropsychist or a panpsychist that thinks that the fund, fundamentality, the fundamental level is um, small things as opposed to big things, right? There's micropsychism, consciousness exists at the fundamental level, fundamental level is small things. So all these small consciousness things, like there's an atom that has a little bit of consciousness right? Maybe another atom has a little bit of consciousness, whatever. And then they, you build up to the, our consciousness. You combine, they combine together, these micro-consciousnesses. And cosmopsychism says that fundamental level is the, um, is the big thing, the universe. And we're all part of this universal consciousness, which is actually the cosmopsychist interpretation seems a lot more aligned with your ocean analogy. Like the ocean would be the universal consciousness. But there is this problem of combination where it seems like if, if consciousnesses are closed off from one another, then how do you combine them on the micropsychism? Or how are how is it that we could all be different aspects of the same universal consciousness on cosmopsychism if they are gated off from one another? And you're saying they're not. They're just waves. They're just so, 
the yeah. combination problem dissolves on yeah, your view. Exactly. They're just waves. And and for, and with the cause the uh cosmopsychism um outlook. Yeah. Again, consciousness is impermanent just like everything else. So what is the consciousness arising and disappearing in? Where does it come from and where does it go? Right? It's it's in a sense, it's it's empty in and of itself. But that same emptiness is kind of that ocean that we're talking about. So what the mind and the matter are arising and passing away in, that emptiness, right? Mm-hmm. That, that space-like tendency, mm-hmm. that's the ocean mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah. That, that sky-like. Yeah, there is one way of someone put it to me once is you have the ocean analogy, right? Another way would be like we're all radio signals that are tuning into the same frequency or something right. like that. Right. But that but, frequency isn't anything in and of itself. It's, I mean, it is in a sense in the Buddhist view that deathless element that's in all of us, which is. <laughs> so <it's>, uh, <laughs> you're just looking at me like a madman. <laughs> deathless in every single one of them. <laughs> But again, this is what gets rid of all fear. You know, if you realize that, you know, as they say, die before you die. As Shinzen Young puts it, um, he's actually, he was a Buddhist monk for a little bit, but he combines science with uh, enlightenment. He's been a long time meditator for many years. He, um, he talks about dying before you die, which is really what we're pointing to here. And he said, someone who lives a hundred years of their life not doing that, or just one day realizing that. He said he can't speak for everybody, but for him, he would choose that one day. So that, I mean, that's how, I mean, that's just how grand this this realization is and the effect it has. So. Dying before you die. I think that, I don't know. In, in some sense, I feel like I'm constantly being reborn. You are. And dying. It's because you are. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> like we talked about, everything, matter and mind, is arising and passing. Yeah, the flame. Yeah. That's it. So you, that's why it's like, when you think of rebirth, it, it doesn't, I mean, again, you're already dying every moment, in yes. a sense. I mean, your your entire skeleton is actually different every, I think, seven or 10 years. Right, right. You see, this see is, what I'm saying? Yeah. if you're coming at it from, um, um, a philosophy of technology standpoint. This is we had we have this conversation recently too. But one of the biggest worries for uh, radical forms of cognitive enhancement, like some radical, uh, you know, some uh, brain computer interface that just makes you chip that makes you ten times smarter. Um, one metaphysical worry for those kinds of enhancements it'll it'll radically transform your mind so much that it might rupture your personal identity or, or your or your or your selfhood. You know, you don't want to lose your personal identity or or mind uploading for example if you upload your consciousness are is that your is that is that still you in some sense and on your view where we're constantly being reborn and we and 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 dying there really is no personal identity so like that wouldn't really be as much of a concern exactly like just as there isn't anything continuing on life to life i don't see how there could be a continuation of something that you think is permanent to transfer over to a technology because as we see oh well yeah you, you don't you, you don't think that consciousness could be transferred over to a technology well i don't know but it it uh 
I mean, it's it's something that arises and passes. So it's almost like you're trying. It's almost like you're trying to permeate something that's inevitable, going to change. So I just, I, it's hard for me to so, understand. You that. know, I, I so we never talked about this, but so what do you think about the simulation hypothesis? The idea that, or what, the idea that either we're living in a simulation or that it's possible for us to create computers where we simulate consciousness. You know, if you think that if you're a computationalist and you think that consciousness is essentially a computation, um, which is actually a pretty popular view. What would Buddha, what does Buddhism have to say about that? Can, can we create consciousness? Can we, can we simulate it? Is simulated consciousness possible? Well, I mean, for one thing, we don't even know what consciousness is really. So yeah, questions like that, uh, <laughs> the Buddha never really gotten into the metaphysical aspects. Um, the Buddha didn't answer whether we computers can simulate consciousness. <laughs> Obviously not. But <laughs> he wasn't really thinking about that. <laughs> if you're just if you're just if you're just asking uh, for just ideas, um, I mean, from my view, if you had to make a bet. If you, if, if you could upload consciousness on yeah. technology? Yeah, someone says, do you think we, with perfect technology, perfect understanding of the brain and the 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 neural correlates of consciousness, and you know, we could simulate the brain at a, at, at a level of granular detail, um, would consciousness be simulated as well? Consciousness birthing consciousness? Um, and again, I, I, I don't know either. I'm just trying to spark thoughts. Well, again, so I, I guess what you're asking is, could you create a repetition of a mind stream almost, or of a, a process? You're almost trying to create a process, a continuation of something. Because, I mean, there's nothing, so there's nothing stable, obviously. So if you're talking about consciousness, you're talking about creating a, a pattern or a, a process that's continually going. I have no idea. It, it doesn't sound... I mean, I, who knows, but it would be impermanent just as everything else is. I mean, so I, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know how to answer that question, really. <sighs> yeah, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. Um, you know, yeah, there's tons of people who are biological naturalists think that, uh, like John Searle, you know, we can never simulate consciousness only biological organisms can have consciousness. All that jazz. But anyways, we've been exploring we've been exploring the metaphysical lands of consciousness for a bit. Yeah. Just looking behind uh, corners, climbing the mount the mountains, the metaphysical landscape of consciousness, turning over rocks and finding pit truths about panpsychism. Yeah, it's fun. It's still it's still all a mystery, you know. Yeah, like what is happening? It's it's not. It's why not, are we like? Yeah, what? What is so, happening right now? I mean, you talked about life being a simulation before, and I mean, in a sense, it could be like that. I mean, it's to me, it just seems more like like a dream, which is why they, I think, the word awakening really hits the nail on the head because it's it seems real. It seems real. What's going on? But fundamentally, ultimately, it's 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 all an illusion just like a rainbow right i mean a rainbow is moisture and clouds and sun and water but i mean it's that's all it is there's there's no thing called rainbow that exists so 
that, that seems exa- I mean, exactly what's going on with what we call ordinary life, you know? I fucking love these Rogan mics, dude. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>